We're continuing our look at the arrival of the king from the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. It's been uh, great the past couple of Sunday mornings to have the songs tied directly to this section of text as we look at uh, Jesus' arrival. Uh, We're in a section that uh, I would say these prophecies are considered skeptical by a lot of people, particularly this back end. In Matthew chapter 4, you have four prophecies. And we looked at the first one last week, which talked about the obscurity of the king in one sense, that Bethlehem will no longer be considered this small little town, but greatness is now going to come from it because the child that is going to be the rescue of the world is going to be found there. And then the rest of Matthew 2 from verse 13 to verse 23, which will be our text this morning, contains three prophecies. But these three prophecies drive scholars and skeptics mad because they don't seem to be referring to Jesus at all. It looks like the author is just kind of cherry picking some words out of the Hebrew scriptures and saying, behold, see, it's Jesus. Uh, The first two of them are not referring to Jesus and the last prophecy is not even found in the Hebrew scriptures. So we're going to talk about those and try to figure out what is Matthew doing here because he is trying to show us beautiful pictures of who Jesus is and what he's come to do as our savior. And we're going to see that, that these prophecies are not just merely random quotations or proof texts, but rather driving at a very deep and powerful picture about who God is in Jesus. You'll notice the first one that was just read for us is verses 13 through 15. And you'll notice that it comes to this quotation at the end of verse 15. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, one of the there's a number of things that are are fascinating about the scene that is given to us here. Herod, he is intent on killing Jesus. We talked about that last week, that we have this reaction of rebellion and hostility against God and against his anointed. And so you'll notice that an angel of the Lord in verse 13 appears to Joseph and says, you need to take the child, you need to take Mary, and the three of you need to go to Egypt. And I hope that you would recognize the tremendous, stunning nature of saying that the place of safety of all places is Egypt, not Israel. Egypt is going to be the place of deliverance. Egypt is going to be the place of rescue and safety. All throughout the scriptures, Egypt is the place of slavery. It's a place that Israel's never supposed to go back to. It is always portrayed in a negative sense, except one other time. That one other instance is Joseph in the book of Genesis fleeing to Egypt, going to Egypt, and there while being in Egypt is able to provide and rescue for Israel as a great famine comes over the land and Joseph then is ultimately going to be the one to give protection. And so it is an interesting picture that is given to us that here is this imagery from Genesis of Joseph who has his family come down to Egypt to protect for them and to provide for them and deliver them from the coming famine. And now you have a parallel scene happening. In fact, not by accident, I don't think, say name, 
a Joseph is going to take his family and take them down to Egypt. And that is going to be the place of rescue and provision from the threat of danger that is happening in the land of Israel. And so the first picture that I think is just stunning to us to see is that Egypt becomes the place of rescue. It is a statement about Israel that we will continue to observe that Israel is not safe for the anointed. But Egypt is. And Egypt is going to be the place of temporary rescue. And I think in connecting this scene all the more, please consider in Genesis, our Joseph there is a dreamer. He sees dreams. He sees dreams about rescuing his family, a scene about his father and the the sons, his brothers, and they are all bowing down to him as he gives these dreams of rescue. You will notice that three times we are told that this Joseph in Matthew 2 is also receiving dreams to do this. He is being strongly connected to the Joseph of Genesis because he also has an angel of the Lord give him a dream in verse verse 13. The the Lord appears in in a dream in, in verse 19 and then he is warned in a dream in verse 22 three times. In this very short paragraph, it is described for us that Joseph is receiving these dreams from God. And so it is the first picture of this is a connection to what is happening in Genesis. Now, this really pushes forward about this idea, and I'm going to explain. What Matthew is showing us is that Jesus is representing a new Israel. Just as Joseph of Genesis has his family, remember what his dad's name has changed to? Israel, come down to Egypt for rescue and deliverance. Now Joseph is taking his family, taking his son Israel, and taking him also to Egypt to be able to provide rescue. This is the essence of the quotation that's being proven. When you look at verse 15, it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Let's back up and get the context of that quotation. Because this is talking about Israel. And this is what the scholars say is Hosea had no way be talking about Jesus. He's talking about Israel. Read it. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. That is Israel. This is a reference to when God called Israel out of Egyptian slavery. And you have in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, God specifically calling Israel, my firstborn son. I'm going to rescue them so they can come and they can worship me. But notice the problem that's stated in Hosea 11 verse 2. Verse 1, we have, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. You have an image that's given to us here that while Hosea is prophesying about Israel and the relationship that God has with Israel, Israel has failed in its mission. I loved him. I called him my son. I brought him out of Egypt. However, the more that I called him, the more he went the wrong way. He is in rebellion. He wasn't doing. And that's why the book of Hosea is all about the judgment and later 
rescue of Egypt, I mean, Israel out of Egyptian, excuse me, out of Babylonian captivity. Notice the picture, though. While physical Israel has failed in its purpose, Jesus is being pictured as this new Israel who's actually going to do God's will. This is the hope that this prophecy is getting at because people come to verse 15 and go, well, out of Egypt, I called my son. That's not talking about Jesus, but actually it is in in a way. And that's the whole idea of what this is doing as the writer speaks this way. The writer of Matthew gives us this picture is out of Egypt. I called my son. Now I'm going to have my servant, my son, who is actually going to accomplish my will and do what he has been called to do. I have on the screen Isaiah 49, which is giving the reference to that through this servant, salvation was supposed to be to the ends of the earth, that there would be a light to all the world. But Israel fails in that mission. So now here is God saying, physical Israel is failing at that. Physical Israel is the place of danger. And I am going to take my son and put him in Egypt, the place of safety, so that he will then be this true rescuer and true deliverer. Here's the great irony of it all. The location of the quotation in verse 15 seems to make no sense. Notice it is when Joseph and Mary and Jesus go to Egypt that it says, out of Egypt I called my son. When should we put verse 15 down in verse 21? And then he rose and took the child and left Egypt and went to Israel to fulfill the quotation, out of Egypt I called my son. It seems to be fitting in the wrong place. Why are you saying when he leaves Israel and goes to Egypt, see, out of Egypt I called my son, except we are trying to get a sense that there is such rebellion against God and against his anointed, against the Christ, that the physical Israel is being depicted as if it were Egypt and he is now fleeing Egypt. It is a, a, an exodus in the wrong direction. You are leaving the promised land and going to physical Egypt and that is the place of rescue. It's backward. And that's what the writer is trying to show us is that the hope in terms of what God had said about physical Israel is broken because they haven't kept God's law. They are faithless. And so here I am now calling my son. He is my true son because he is going to do my will, be faithful to the covenant, be faithful to God, and thus be able to be the true rescuer of Israel. That's why this, this passage is, it can be misunderstood and read it and go, well, out of Egypt I called my son. We just kind of carry right along. And yet the picture is extraordinary because God in this prophecy is already laying a condemnation on the land of Israel and saying, but I have my one, my son, my true son, Jesus, who is going to be the new Israel, the true Israel, so that all who belong to him are going to find safety and rescue because physical Israel and the land of Israel is like Egypt. And I am calling my son out of Egypt to a new promised land, to a new Israel, to a new hope, to a new reality. He is the new rescuer. That's why these three verses are completely backward and they're supposed to be. Is he's trying to get across to us what the the new hope and new rescue is in Jesus. This is what flows in the rest of these quotations. You'll notice in verses 16 through 18, we have another strange 
quotation. Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, who has not read that quotation and went, uh, okay, <laughs> what does this have to do with Christ? What does this have to do with proving that Jesus is the son of God, that he is the savior and the chosen one? One of the things to to capture is that this verse is a strange verse in terms of the context because all of Jeremiah 31, from which this text comes from, is a very positive and very hopeful prophecy. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 1, it'll say the Lord is going to be the God of his people again and the people will have God belonging to them yet one more time. The relationship is going to be restored. Just a couple of verses later, here God says, I'm going to confirm my everlasting love to you. In verse 14 of Jeremiah 31, that the people are going to be satisfied with the goodness of God. The first 14 verses of Jeremiah 31 are extraordinarily positive. God coming back to his people. The people will be able to worship God and belong to him again. The blessings are going to come. The restoration is going to happen. That God is going to be able to give these blessings and the people will be satisfied. Then this quotation, verse 15, very next sentence. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This is where our text is. But notice the very next breath. Thus says the Lord. Keep your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears. For there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will come back to their own country. Now, context of what Jeremiah is doing. Ramah was the place of deportation. After Babylon comes in and is destroying the land of Judah and taking people captive, the reason why Ramah is weeping is because this is the place where the people are being taken to Babylonian captivity. And God's hope in this is saying, I understand you're weeping now, but look at your future. Don't let your, keep from your voice from weeping. Keep your eyes from tears. There is reward. You will come back. There will be rescue. There is hope for your future. Your children will come back to their own country. Okay, so what in the world does this have to do with this text right here? Why would Matthew pluck this and say, Okay, when Herod is killing the children, this is fulfilling, just like Jeremiah said, about deportation into Babylon and there. See, it fits. That's why people read this and go, what is happening? Here's what, what, is, what is happening. This verse is, is bad news, but it is bad news setting up for really good news. The imagery is that 
when this event happens, it is setting up for extraordinary future hope. When you read the words of verse 15, that she's weeping in Ramah, you would know the context of Jeremiah 31 that says, yes, things are bad, but there is a reversal that's about to happen. There are bad things that are happening in the moment, which is being depicted as Herod, who is trying to destroy the Christ. But when that happens, you are on the cusp of the beginning of hope. That this is the beginning of light in a hopeless time. This is the imagery that's given is that God is saying that God will again bring his people back. It is as if Jesus is this new Moses who is going to bring his people out of exile and lead them into the promised land and enjoy the great blessings because of what he's been able to accomplish. In fact, we just mentioned Rama is the place where the exiles are taken away. By quoting this, you're saying Jesus is the one who's bringing them back. In fact, if you've been in the pews long enough, you might know Jeremiah 31 for another passage in it. Because after talking about the weeping and stop weeping, future hope, he's going to say there's going to be a new covenant in which I will be their God and they will be my people and I will forgive their sins and I'll remember their iniquities no more. Same same chapter, same prophecy, same declaration. And so you have right here this quotation, the one line of what seems to be hopeless. And God is saying, no, you're on the cusp of massive reversal, on being let, set free, led out of the exile, out of the darkness. Freedom and forgiveness is coming. New covenant is coming. New hope is coming. And that's why Matthew wants to use this quotation. It's not about proving, oh, see, Jeremiah was talking about Jesus, not at all, but talking about a bigger hope that was to come. This is the moment of darkness, but now light is about to come. And that leads to the third strange quotation. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So this, now, this would be that good Hosea one out of Egypt. I call myself. No, I don't want that one here. We've already dealt with that. I've done the reversal. Rather, here's what I want you to see. Verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this one drives everybody crazy because you can search Genesis to Malachi all day long, backward and forward. You will not find he shall be called a Nazarene. It is not to be found whatsoever. So what is Matthew doing by using this quotation? What is he trying to communicate? What is he trying to get across? And I think it's important to note, first of all, you'll notice he says in verse 23, this is spoken of by the prophets, plural. It's almost as if you could find this all over the place. 
He doesn't say there was one person, a prophet, who said this. But the prophet said this, which is even all the more head-scratching. Because you're going, okay, I should be able to find this idea somewhere in the prophets, plural, who are speaking about Jesus being called a Nazarene. What does this mean? In fact, it is something tremendously important because if you think about in the Gospels, as well as in the book of Acts, what does everybody call Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. It is used repeatedly. It is a constant title and description that's given to him. And so it has significance. Is not another throwaway. Well, he'll be called a Nazarene, and so therefore we prove Nazareth. There's something going on that is being proven here. Now, some think there's a word play going on about the branch and a prophesied branch. Could be. Some think, okay, Nazarite vow in the Old Testament. Nazarite, Nazarene sounds kind of close, and Nazarites were about holiness, and so maybe it's that. All right, could be. But I think there has to be something far more obvious and straightforward about saying Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. What is this getting at? You will know when you think about the New Testament what it meant to be from Nazareth or what it meant to be from Galilee had great significance. Like you have in John 1 verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And of course, Nathaniel goes, that's great. I'm so glad we finally found the one. Now his response is, really? Nazareth? Can anything remotely good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, well, you've got to come find out and see. Notice the initial response of, we have found the Messiah and he is of Nazareth. is not Messiah, but Nazareth. Nazareth? You, Nazareth? Nazareth is a two-bit town. There's nothing there. It has zero historical significance. It's, it's a nothing place. Similarly, Acts chapter 2 when you have the apostles who are uh, been, have the Holy Spirit fall upon them and now are speaking in different languages, the response of the crowds, the thousands in Jerusalem, they were amazed and astonished and said, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own native language? They're Galileans equals, well, they can't do this. They are, we did not go to University of Galilee. There's no University of Galilee. They are not the upper crust. They are not the highly educated. They are not the high religious. How can these people from Galilee be here in Jerusalem, the place of excellence and religiousness and education, be doing something like this? That's why they're trying to figure this out. In fact, you might remember when Peter is denying Jesus, you have one of the challenges of him. We know that you're with him. Your accent gives it away. You sound like a Galilean. Now, see, here's one of the problems that happens. We sometimes look at Israel 
as like a monolithic, all people were the same kind of thing, which is as ridiculous as looking at the United States of America and thinking, well, everybody's culture is exactly the same because you're all Americans. Californians are not like New Yorkers and New Yorkers are not like Ohioans and Ohioans are not like people from Alabama. Everybody's different. There's all kinds of cultures and all kinds of ideas about those cultures within even a country. How about even with our own state? The panhandle of Florida and its culture It's not like the Florida Keys culture. (laughs) Those are two wildly different cultures. One much more southern, one much more relaxed and sit on the beach. Within populations, there are these distinctions. And that is what is being depicted here. To be from Nazareth, to be from Galilee, was contemptible. If you're from Jerusalem, if you're from Judea, And you're talking about people in Galilee. Those people are useless. They're contemptible. They're backwater. They don't know anything. They're dumb. They're from the middle of nowhere. We are urban in Jerusalem. We are in the better land. We are in the better region. And all those terrible backward people of Galilee. Boy, they don't know anything. That's the mentality. That's what's at stake. That's why you see that pop up in the Gospels about being of Galilee. That can't be good. Being from Nazareth, you've got to be kidding me. So, you know, I could make an illustration and pick one, but I don't. So I'll let you do it in your own head about your personal one where you think of a culture within our own country and go, wow, that's just totally backward. It's just totally different. That's just crazy. That's what they're doing. They're doing the exact same thing you do about fill in the blank state. Yeah, that's nuts. Nothing good can come from there. Goodness is from my region, my area. We're the smart ones. And so Galileans were always looked down upon by Judeans. They're the nobodies. They're the useless. They're the outcasts. And therefore to say to be a Nazarene meant that Jesus would be from nowhere, be a nobody, and be absolutely contemptible. Now, are there prophets that said that? Oh, yes. That's just a couple of them. But the prophets spoke absolutely about the obscurity of the Christ, about his contemptible nature, that he would be a nobody from nowhere. That nobody would care about him. Nobody would look at him and go, aha, the king. No, he's going to be considered nothing. He's going to be useless. He's not going to have anything whatsoever. So why is this given to us? Why is this so important? How is this fitting into the picture of what Matthew wants us to see about Jesus? To see him as deeply despised, rejected, and not be of any kind of stature or status. Then nobody would care about him or look upon him in any way. What's the point of all that? Except he has come to represent the insignificant. 
There is something amazing about this Christ, this Savior, this one who's come to rescue. That he is not someone who comes to rescue and be the Savior of the Jerusalem type people. The rich, the status. No, in fact, how many times did Jesus say they're the people who aren't going to listen? The rich aren't going to pay attention. The powerful aren't going to listen. But rather he has come to rescue and be savior of the Nazarene type people. He does the majority of his work in Galilee. Amongst the nobodies. Amongst the contemptible. Amongst the people that those of status and power and riches and might would look down upon and say, Who cares about them? They are nothing. So he does his work and is from Galilee to show that he has come for the lowly, the outcast, the downtrodden, and the rejected. Now, let's pull all three of these together into this paragraph and give you the big idea and the big takeaway. First of all, I want you to see Matthew was not just throwing prophecies at the wall and hoping some of them stick. <laughs> Out of Egypt I called my son. That sounds good. <laughs> Let's just use that one. Oh, forget context. We won't worry about what Hosea was really talking about. Or uh, Rama is weeping. Uh, okay, well, don't, don't worry about that. Ignore the context. That's not what's happening here. And the other thing I hope you'll do is when you read through Matthew 2, that you will not just buzz by these and go, okay, yeah, uh, uh, a voice is heard in Rama weeping and lamentation or out of Egypt called my son. And we skip over it as if what Matthew was doing is just proof texting. He's not because these are terrible proof texts because none of them are talking about Jesus. So he's not going to work. But rather, these are prophecies ultimately trying to show who Jesus is. That Jesus is now that new Moses that Moses himself said would come. There is a prophet like me who will arise, who's going to bring about this whole new exodus and do it all over again to set his people free so that they can be uh, free to worship God and set free from their slavery to sin. And Jesus is being depicted by Matthew as that one who is being the rescuer. He is the one who's accomplished this. And thus out of Egypt, I've called my son. The Jeremiah prophecy is to show Jesus is the one who can absolutely change and reverse your life. In this moment, as you read verse 18, you would look at this and go, Herod's going to win. He's going to kill all the two-year-old boys in, 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 in Judea and make sure that this child dies. It looks hopeless. Everybody's weeping. Children are dying. And the whole prophecy actually hinges upon, just hold on one more moment, a great reversal is about to happen. Herod's not going to win this. Herod's not going to be successful. Rather, he's going to flip the condition from darkness to light. We'll touch on that again in chapter 4, because that comes out again in chapter 4. Big reversal when Jesus arrives, moving you from darkness to light. Talked about that in Bible class. See that picture in our Bible class in Colossians chapter 1? And here is the picture. He's come to reverse your condition. 
Nobody else can help your life. Nobody else can reverse your condition. Nobody else can change the circumstances, but God through his son. And Matthew wants you to see that. But here's the the, the kicker. This offer of rescue, of being delivered from sin, of being set free, of being able to have reversal, of going from darkness of light to light, is an offer for the Galileans. And what do you mean by that? It's an offer for those who do not see themselves as powerful and rich and mighty and not needing anything. It is a call for the contemptible. It's a call that is truly for the nobodies. It is an offer to those who are hurting. It is an offer to those who are considered worthy of being ignored and rejected, outcast, ostracized. It is an amazing picture that you have the obscurity of the king in four prophecies of chapter two. Born in Bethlehem. The prophecy of Micah is Bethlehem's nothing. It's a little town that's that's skipped over in the count in, in Judah, but it's going to become something great because of the king that comes there. The obscurity of the king that he's going to escape to Egypt. And he's going to grow up in Galilee. It only reveals what Jesus has come to do. That he has come for the obscure. That he has come for the unknown. He has come for the unwelcomed. He has come for the disregarded and discarded. It is something so different than what you would expect a royal king to do. Would he not come for those who are really important? Would he not pay attention to the people who have a lot of money, who have a lot of influence, who make a difference? That our culture puts on a pedestal and says, these people we need to pay attention to. You ever seen that in the news? Have you ever watched a news thing and went, why do I care that's going on in that celebrity's life? Who cares? (laughs) I don't care. So what? But our culture has the, the, the classes. These are the really important people. If that event happened to me, nobody would put me on the news. Nobody would care about me. We're the obscure. We're the despised. We're the disregarded. We're the nobodies. We're, nobody cares. And Jesus is saying, and you're the ones that I've come for. These prophecies show that you're the people I've come for. I've lived in obscurity. And I want us to see the picture that Jesus is able to represent you before God, standing on your behalf, because he knows. He is of Galilee. He is of Nazareth. And every time you read the name Jesus of Nazareth, it's saying you belong with him. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is stunning to think that you would hold in great regard people who our culture holds with no regard. 
and that, Lord, you care so deeply to save and set free and transform every single person, no matter where we grew up, no matter where we were born, no matter what we do for a living, no matter how much money we make, no matter how much status we carry, and no matter what anybody thinks of us. Lord, thank you for the picture that you've given us from Matthew. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the transformation that you are offering to us and to realize that no one is outside of your call. Lord, no one is too sinful. No one is too despised. No one is too disregarded or exiled or outcast. God, we praise you that you love us like that. Lord, we go through so much in our lives that make us feel like we are nothing, that make us feel so insignificant, and we can feel so low in this world. And Lord, we thank you for your son that elevates us to this wonderful new position of being your children and that you have called us to great things in being set free to serve you, to love you, and to follow you. So thank you for these pictures, and thank you for your son who leads us out of Egypt and leads us into victory. And Lord, we pray as we serve and follow you will lead us into the promised land. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing invitation song, The Call is to You. You are not too low. You are not too insignificant. You are not too disregarded for the call that is given to you. In fact, he made the call to you. No matter who you are or where you're from, the call is to you. Turn away from your sins. Follow him with all of your heart. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And follow him faithfully wherever he goes. He wants you to move from darkness to light. He wants you to be radically transformed. He wants to change everything about you so that you can have a wonderful life in service to him and looking forward to eternity with him. Can we help you do that? Just let us know. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?